to me, there's just something inherent in humans. We like a good story. A good story usually has a villain. A serial killer is the ultimate villain, like serial killer or the devil himself, you know, <laughs> those are going to make the most extreme, compelling stories. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of living better, living well, a healthier life. Rudy, I do not have this down. What are we doing this for? <laughs> Self-improvement. Self-improvement, Self-improvement, that's right. Because if we're not getting better every day, Gwen, then what's the point of living? Exactly. Just as Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so we are living the examined life and we're bringing it all to you. We are. And by the way, speaking of examinations, this is a very interesting episode. It's Mm -hmm. a very interesting topic, but we get serious about it. We ask the right questions. What are the questions that you think are very important for this episode? Okay, I am so excited about this one. I'm totally giddy. We've never done anything like this. This is on serial killers, on female serial killers. And one of the questions that we had was, how do you navigate the entertainment factor with the very seriousness of the crime so that you're honoring the history and also the victims, of course, and the families, but you're bringing this in a narrative. So how do you strike that balance? Yes, we do. And then we even, I'm going to take it a little bit further, Gwen, because you're obviously the female host on this. I'm the I'm the, the crazy host on this. You take the question to another level, which I don't think I can, anybody can be offended by this question, which is why are women obsessed with true crime podcasts today? And I swear, I think you give the greatest answer ever and we examine it very well. Thank you. I, can, I like it when I get a good question in. You know, it happens every once in a while. Okay, wait, we have an awesome guest, but there is something that I just have to say. This is our 99th episode. And in prepping for this, and I was thinking about just how awesome our guest is, I wanted to thank our listeners because we are able to provide great content because of the support of our audience. Our audience is fantastic. We're getting these reviews. We get feedback on Instagram. People reach out to us. Our patrons on Patreon It is because of that support that we're able to reach out to these high quality guests and keep bringing the best stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have a great audience. And then it makes people excited to come on the pod to share their wisdom and to be, you know, just extremely generous with their time because they know we've got a great audience. So just before we get into it, I have to thank everyone and for bringing us to 99 episodes. Hats off to Good Pods HQ on Twitter and the Good Pods app. We've been very high on the charts there. We've met a lot of friends there, other fellow podcasters. Hats off to every every other podcaster that supports us, retweets us, comments on things. We love you and we will continue to support you as well. Yeah, Seize the Moment podcast has been awesome. So big thank you to them. They even gave us a review and we were on their show. And so go and support them because they're amazing they have great content as well and we also yeah like you said on good pods we have for the second time ranked number one in our category of education and courses and again great audience great listeners and that allows us to bring the great guests like the one that we have so i got this book called lady killers deadly women throughout history caught my attention it was in the romans bookshop in pasadena and it was labeled as kind of a bit of a interesting feminist take so of course i like true crime i like feminism so i had to see what it was all about fell in love with the book i even posted a picture of it on instagram on one of my stories everybody was like that looks amazing and i thought i'm gonna look up the author tori telfer took a chance and said hey would you like to come on the pod and she said yes we are so lucky, Rudy. Our first episode on serial killers, true crime is super hot right now. And Tori did not disappoint. She was so gracious. And we learned about her process in writing, what got her interested in this, and a lot of the details about these different women. And also, why is it important to tell these stories? What is it about us that we like to hear these stories? But what do we learn about these stories? So one of the big topics is, you know, what is evil? And the gender aspect of what makes a female serial killer more interesting than 
let's just say, what is presupposed as a serial killer as a man. And who are the victims and the method of killing? We get into all that. We do. I explain again my whole love of the horror genre. I explain again why I've read countless amounts of serial killer uh, books. And I actually... But hats off to Tori. She said I had one of the best explanations she's ever heard. So to her, I don't sound like a crazy person. Hopefully our audience will listen and hear about my own personal trauma that I went through when a serial killer was running around when we were youth. Okay, when I was mm-hmm. youth, you know, you're you're exactly. eternally youthful. Um, in 1985, the most impactful summer of my life. And maybe people can connect to that. And maybe and then maybe people are like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is the reason why the serial killer and true crime podcasts are important. I love that we examined it. It wasn't that we just talked about true crime. We went deep. And that's why I love what we do on this podcast. Yeah, the ideas are important. I I mean, the ideas that underscore people's work, it's always fun to investigate that and to examine it further. So now let's talk Lady Killers with Tori Telfer. Tori, welcome to the show. We're going to be talking about lady killers, deadly women throughout history. Thank you for joining the pod. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So I discovered your book from Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena, and it was in one of the recommended sections. And so I was drawn to it, and I like true crime. So I guess one of my first questions for you is that I know your background is in writing. Did you always have a thing for true crime? I always had a thing for history, and I always had a thing for weird and dangerous figures in history, you know, since high school, maybe earlier. But I never thought of myself as someone into true crime, and I never wrote true crime until I wrote my first piece about a female serial killer. I just, um, I wasn't like one of those kids who grew up reading about serial killers and obsessing over Charles Manson, and there are kids, (laughs) there are people who grew up that way. But I was more. <laughs> you're, you're talking to one. Yeah, you're, okay. liter- you're you were literally talking to one of those one of those kids that we'll get into. But I'm uh, really quick. Who? So who was that first female serial killer that you wrote about? Well, she's she ended up in the book um, Urjebet Bathory, the or Bathory, if we're being really specific. She was the Hungarian. She's the oldest serial killer in my book. The Hungarian lady who may or may not have killed a bunch of her servant girls. And I wrote a piece about her for this website called The Hairpin, and it led to my book because people are so into serial killers which you would know Rudy but I didn't I've talked about this on other episodes of ours the reason why I was obsessed with serial killers is not because I'm a psycho (laughs) it was because my youth was ruined by a psycho Um, a male female I know we're going to talk about females today but to me, one of the craziest serial killers of all time was Richard Ramirez, the Night yes, Stalker. Yes. He terrorized the 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 LA the greater LA County, Orange County area in in the mid eighties uh, yeah. around the area where Gwen and I grew up. And for for an entire summer, I didn't sleep. The summer of nineteen eighty five, I swear to you, oh, I did not sleep my. a single wink. I slept during the day and would stay up all night. And I remember becoming elated the day that he was caught, but I, I suffered from PTSD for months. Wow. And that's how my my love of horror film actually came about because I realized on, on a horror film, you could press pause. And when I pressed pause, it was like this relief. Wow. And so, and then I became obsessed with serial killers and horror films because of a serial killer. Uh, but yes, th- that's my reasoning why I was, I've been so into it. I, I don't know what other yeah, yeah. people's reasonings are, but that's mine. Well, that is one of the most legit reasons I've ever heard. Most people <laughs> don't have that, uh, you know, firsthand experience. And that is terrifying. And I feel for you. I will say Richard Ramirez getting caught is one of the most like throw your fist in the air moment in true crime, how the whole community chased him. <laughs> I love that detail. It was because he was a he was a Latino. He was caught by Latinos. Yeah. He was such a disparagement on that community. Everyone was elated that he yeah. was caught by. It was just that you're right. It was a put a fist pump in the in the air type of a thing. Has that ever happened with female serial killers getting caught? I can't think of anything like that because. In general, these stories take place in more private spheres, in the home. I mean, obviously Ramirez broke into homes, but a lot of the women in my book were killing in the same home that they lived in, and there's just much more of a 
domestic private aura to these women and so no there's no scene where someone's like racing down a the alleyway and chased by an angry mob that I can think of but it's pro you know if one pops into my mind during this interview I'll interrupt you and tell it seemed to be that the majority of the women who were doing this that it was like you said in the domestic space that they were killing their husbands and then in order to it wasn't just for pleasure it was for a social status to then marry somebody else or whoever was useful to them at the time they would marry be with and then discard if they could get something better yes there were definitely a lot of women who used especially poison to improve their lives like that a lot of women killing for insurance money you know the classic black widow who marries five husbands and they all mysteriously die that kind of thing but I do think it's a misconception that all female serial killers or all female murderers did it for another reason other than bloodlust. The stories aren't as literally bloody as like a Richard Ramirez or a Ted Bundy. You know, they don't tend to kill in the same way, the same very bloody way. But there are a fair amount of women. Urjabet Battery would be one. She was uh, gross. Saltikova. Yeah, she she was gross, but also maybe framed, question mark. But Daria Saltikova, Russian wealthy woman who I, I believe her story a lot more, also like beat and killed her servant girls. You know, those are examples of people who, women who did have that bloodlust and that just really difficult to understand urge to kill that we often attribute to men. Tori, really quick. And I definitely want to get into the killers, and I want to make a connection to my love of film noir and mm -hmm. femme fatales. But, but Tori, I explained why I was into serial killers and horror. I have to know why, <laughs> why you, why did you, what happened, what was it, what what what, what occurred. Oh, you know, I need to steal your story because that would be really good for selling books. I do not have a good story like that. My earliest mad character from history that I was obsessed with was the Roman Emperor Nero, who was just a loose cannon. And I, we don't even have time to get into him. But I think my attraction to that story was the horror. And also it kind of made me laugh in a deranged way because he was so larger than life that is one of the things when I look back on my life like why did I start writing about serial killers I, I do see those threads in stories like that that I was obsessed with but why I started writing about female serial killers it's very prosaic freelance writer looking for something to pitch looking to get paid found the story of Rajabet Battery and I was like huh this is really interesting and I've never heard about it and no one else seems to be writing about her you know for a popular audience it really just snowballed and now I'm the female criminals girl <laughs> but I don't have a good story like yours it's all weird how we find our niches right mm -hmm. yes <laughs> something you wrote in the introduction is that because they are women that they may have slipped them under the radar that mm -hmm. there's this assumption that women don't do things like this and there was another observation that you made that I was wondering if you could expand on how you said a lot of women use poison and that somebody mm -hmm. might think that that's an easier thing to do or not as brutal as let's say stabbing somebody or mm -hmm. or shooting them but that you described poison somebody is that it's actually quite grotesque because you have to watch yeah. somebody slowly die right in front of you and not do anything about it yeah poison i think has an undeserved reputation as like an easy a soft feminine way to kill you know a, a less scary way to kill because like i mentioned before there's not blood involved unless someone's vomiting blood but you know it's not like the body isn't being breached in the same way as a stabbing or gunshot or something but yes I mean these women when you really sit down and think about how long they took to kill to poison some of their victims all the while pretending to nurse them back to health you know there were things like giving someone a soothing cup of tea or a glass of cool water to help them feel better which was also spiked with poison I mean that's really intensely evil behavior and then the symptoms that these victims were experiencing really gross I mean there are reports from from, you know, France in the 1700s or whatever of autopsies of, like, blackened insides. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, po it, being killed by slow arsenic poisoning is no joke. It's just gotten this weird reputation as easy when, in fact, it's really actually, I think, a much more... I don't want to rank the ways of killing because all murder is atrocious, but it's a more diabolical way to kill someone than, like, a gunshot wound, which we think of as this manly, direct thing. 
if yeah. that makes sense. How do you navigate the seriousness of it, the tragedy of it? There's an entertainment factor to it, mm-hmm. too. I mean, I don't mean to be so crass, but we are drawn no, to right. stories about these killers. So how is it that you honor the people who have died in this horrible way? You report mm-hmm. on it, give the history of it. And at the same time, that entertainment value in order to market it without being crass. I mean, that is the, and you know, the ultimate question and I'm always grappling with it and I don't have an easy answer. I have a couple thoughts. First of all, humans have been interested in this stuff from the dawn of time. I mean, Jack the Ripper, just as big a deal as Netflix Dahmer special that they're running right now probably even a bigger deal because I think we're all (laughs) tired of hearing about Dahmer. So to me, there's just something inherent in humans. We like a good story. A good story usually has a villain. A serial killer is the ultimate villain, like serial killer or the devil himself. You know, (laughs) those are going to make the most extreme, compelling stories. I don't stress about that aspect of human nature. I think we like serial killer stories for the same reason we like to watch movies about World War II. You know, it's like we just need these, we're interested in these sweeping narratives that involve good and evil. As far as why a book on World War II is seen as highbrow, whereas a book on serial killers is seen as lowbrow. That's maybe an some interesting sexism point. involved. <laughs> Can I play a little bit yeah. of armchair psychologist here of of, of human sure. nature? I, I I wonder I wonder Tori if you and let me know if you think I'm crazy. Oh, by the way, I am crazy, but um, I wonder if it's an exercise a bit of control, right? Like if we hear about these serial killer stories, if we learn, well, what was the activity of that serial killer? What did the people do wrong? Will I be better prepared in order to battle a serial killer? Should I ever face that? I wonder if the obsession is because serial killers literally like it's the taking of somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And when it comes when you come down to it, the psychology of any neurosis or psychosis or any anything that people are trying to do, they're always trying to protect their own lives. So I wonder if the obsession with both serial killers and with the horror genre is where we are trying to exercise control. We're trying to educate ourselves just in case we ever face something like that. Is that, is that crazy? No, I don't think that's crazy. I think I've actually heard that said about why women specifically are into true crime too. You know, it's a, Oh, I'm a, you know, I'm more statistically likely to be targeted. Maybe. Although I actually don't think that's true, but uh, we do fear that. And so, you know, I have to know what the stranger on the street might possibly do. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's not how I feel consuming true crime, but I like, is that how you feel? I mean, you did have this intimate brush with it. Yes. Yeah. The reason why I the reason why I have literally read about ten serial killer books. I mean, you name it: uh, the Night Stalker books, the Green River Killer books, mm. the Killers Out in Riverside, um, Helter Skelter. You name it is some kind of an exercise of control because I still, in my brain, in my heart, in everything, mm-hmm. still suffer from the PTSD of the summer of 1985. Oh, yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, that's intense. Helter Skelter was so scary. That was such a scary. scary. You know why I think, I mean, not that I'm in favor of any reasons for murder. It's just that if somebody kills somebody out of jealousy or out of money, um, that's not okay. But it's like, I get it. (laughs) I get the motive. Helter Skelter was so scary because I didn't really get the motive. And that's what what you said with the, the first chapter, the blood countess, this woman who is just torturing her female servants, allegedly. That kind of thing horrifies me. And I just, yeah. see, I wonder when they say that women are into true crime more there. And, you know, there's so many jokes about it, but I keep thinking that it's not that women are just into true crime. It's just that that's the way in which we've been allowed to participate in it, because for the majority of history, men have been the detectives and men have been in law enforcement and so or have been creating the shows that have to do with this. So men are just as into this. It's just that it seems like women are because they are not in the normal avenues for talking about this kind of problem-solving thing. That it's a right. human interest, not just a chick interest yeah. in true crime. I love Damn, that, that was good. That was so good. That, that was yeah. so good. <laughs> I've never heard anyone make that point before, and I've always been really dissatisfied by the why are women into true crime discourse. So... <laughs> 
okay. Yay. That was an excellent point. Yeah. <laughs> Gwen, you 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 nailed it. You, you literally did. dropped the mic on this podcast. I guess we should just hang up. I mean, that was that was amazing. Yeah, well, nothing to add. The other thing. So I'm also curious what you think about this, Rudy. And I don't know what this says about me, but I I had emailed this to Tori. Is that when I have read about true crime, like there was one book, um, what was it called by Anne Rule? There was like The Stranger Beside Me where she was actually yes. friends with Ted Bundy Ted and then Bundy. she wrote about, uh, you know, discovering that, you know, she wanted to be a true crime author and she actually is friends with this serial killer. Mm-hmm. And I was reading that book, Helter Skelter Scared the Hell Out of Me, you know, Ramirez, like all of these serial killers who are male that I'm familiar with, they terrify me. Yet, Tori, when I'm reading your book... I'm not as terrified by the women. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if that is because I identify with the women in both scenarios. So the women who were killed by the men or the women who were killing because the men are the victims for the most part. I'm not as terrified of them as, let's say, I was when I read about Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Rudy, if you good... have any. I do have a thought about that. And, and let me just not to repeat it again. I will go back to Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, because he killed everybody. No he killed yeah. men, right. women, children. Mm-hmm. He did, Young and, he, and he molested children. I mean, he was he was he was the devil on earth. So mm-hmm. clearly, having gone through that, uh, that has that has damaged me. I do wonder. See, Gwen, I don't know because I'm a, I'm I am very afraid of all serial killers as well. Even though, yes, I mean, I think in general, uh, some of the stories that we've heard about Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer. They've, you know, primarily killed women. Um, and in this case of the Green River Killer, it was actually primarily of prostitutes. I believe that, that what, what was her name? The, the, the movie Monster, the, oh, the, yeah, the, the most, yeah. yeah, the most well-known female serial killer that Charlize Theron won the Oscar for. She mostly killed Johns, right? So there's this weird, like, subtext of, okay, well, if you don't commit sex crimes, your chances of getting killed by a serial killer probably drop. Yet... I think people are still very afraid of serial killers. I don't know. It's a, it's a good point. Tori, do you have any thoughts? I feel the same as you, Gwen. I'm not, I didn't feel afraid of these women really while I was writing the book, whereas I do feel more fear of a Ted Bundy-esque character. I think, though, there is a lot in culture where we aren't trained to be afraid of women, and it's tricky because statistically, we I'm not, I don't want us to go around fearing women. Like, women make up such a tiny percentage of violent crime it would be deranged to switch our thinking. So it's like the statistics support us not being afraid of women, but also culturally it's rare to have a real female villain who's not like a villain because she's damaged, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like we just haven't been given a lot of opportunities to see the boogeyman as female, whereas we have so many characters in fiction and real life that are male and that are really easy to fear. So I feel like, we're a little bit trained, you know, to not find the women in my book as scary. Yeah, and maybe, is her name Eileen or Aileen Warnos? Eileen Warnos, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that they made a film about her, and I'm almost wondering if, because she was a sex worker, that she still seems to be on the outside. Because if somebody is a sex worker, they are just kind of abandoned by everybody, liberal, conservative. And so why, you know, in your book of serial killers, she's mentioned... Um, in terms of the way the media handled her, and I thought it was really interesting because you were saying the media plays a role in the way in which they call these women, almost something that's kind of comical in the way that mm-hmm. the women serial killers are described. But why was there this fascination with her when clearly from your book and your research, there's she's not one of a kind? Why was there a fascination with Eileen? Yeah. When she's yeah, not one of a yeah. kind, but she was treated as though she was. She were. Yeah, she was treated as an anomaly. You know, she was called America's first female serial killer, which is just so wildly untrue. I will say she's an anomaly in that she used a gun, that she killed strangers. In ways like that, she acted more like a male serial killer, so I think she was marketable because we already had a template for that kind of serial killer. Um, It was like, oh, look, another serial killer. And this one happens to be a woman. Like, how fascinating. As opposed to the Black Widow or the Angel of Death, you know, the woman who's quietly poisoning. Like, we haven't seen that. We haven't had a big story like that in quite some time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So Eileen 
it's like she crossed over. She's like a crossover serial killer. I mean, we, there's an Oscar-winning movie made about her, unlike all the other women in my book. And it's very interesting that we're talking about the media here, because as I was reading the your opening chapter, Tori, um, I kept mm-hmm. thinking about my fascination with film noir. And one of the things about film noir is the femme fatale, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's like... It's like the femme fatale and in the detective novels and in the detective genre is a huge part of the allure of both film noir and everything. Like, So I'm just kind of curious as to there's very particular tropes for femme fatales, mm-hmm. yet a lot of them... Look, I watch a lot of film noir, and the females in those movies are the big-time killers. So it's like it's very interesting because the media portrayal in film noir shows you know women as killers, and it actually nails what you said in your book, mm-hmm. Tori, about the one thing that you w- that you would say about these females was uh, the one word that comes to your mind is hustle, <laughs> yeah. and where you talked about like how a good portion of them in your study was that they were trying to better their lot in life. And you actually quoted Nietzsche when he said, you know, Nietzsche touched on this drive back in 1887 when he wrote, uh, man will desire oblivion rather than not desire at all. And I, I found that to be a very, very interesting quote because you were talking about with the hustle. When you're speaking of the hustle, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's the film fatale. That's in film mm-hmm. noir. I don't know if you've connected those two at all. The femme fatale and the female serial killer? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I no, I'm not super familiar with film noir, you know, surface level familiarity. I think that one reason why I didn't bring the femme fatale into my book a lot is because she is so, like, her looks are such a big part of it. And while all the women in my book were, their looks were very commented on and scrutinized by the media, most of them are just very ordinary. Like, they're the type, like, the grandma or, like, the woman you just wouldn't suspect. They weren't these bombshells, and it feels like the femme fatale's sexual, like, her hotness and her sexuality is just such an integral part of it. And to me, that puts her in a different category than the women Agreed. in my book. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, that makes a lot of sense. You did, you did in your opening chapter, did actually have several paragraphs about the fo- over <laughs> over focus on the look. And yeah. you're absolutely right. One one of the obsessions in both the detective novels and in film noir is the femme fatale is usually played by a very beautiful actress. Right. And what you're saying is, no, you got to divorce the look here uh, in order to analyze these female serial killers. Right. And just simply, like, if you look at the pictures of the women in my book, I mean, they didn't look like femme fatales at all, which I think if one of them had, she would be a lot more famous. You know, like, imagine if we Mm. got, like, an, you know, like a, what's her name in uh, Fatal Attraction? Like, the icy blonde Sharon Stone, you know, like a female serial killer who looked like that. I mean, she would be just as famous as Ted Bundy, who is an attractive man. Yeah, basic instinct with, uh, with, um... And Sorry. then, and, no, no, no. And Glenn Close, I she, think, was. Yes. Okay. In Fatal Attraction. Yes, that, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, sorry. We're, you're talking to a bunch of 80s film nerds. Well, at least one, one 80s film nerd here. I can't believe I confused the two. Well, something that you, on that note, Tori, something that I have underlined was that this idea that, let's see, their ability to pass as normal. And I think it's so interesting because you say, Serial killers Mm -hmm. aren't scary because they're male. They're scary because they destroy order. Or rather, they reveal that what we perceived as order and normalcy has been a violent lie all along. That's what I thought was so fascinating is that that's why, you know, even the normal look are not not being a bombshell. So there's nothing extraordinary. It is the fact that they pass as just your neighbor, um, you know, the grandma or whatnot, and that we have all sorts of preconceptions about what it means to be that person, that they are destroying that because it just, I don't know. I don't know if you can expand on that because I thought that was a fascinating observation. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I mean, they're also destroying these roles. Like they're destroying the role of wife, the role of mother, the role of grandma, in that the women in my book are killing their husbands and children and neighbors. They're destroying the role of the friendly neighbor who brings over a cup of sugar. And I think that's what makes these women so disturbing is like, Yeah, they're revealing, I'm not saying every mom or neighbor is a facade, of course, (laughs) but in these stories again and again, you do see this facade shattered with the almost cliche, like, oh, what? It was her all along? You know, she was such a nice lady. 
I just don't I know how somebody chilling. would marry these women like the fourth or the fifth <laughs> time and like all the husbands that died ahead of oh, time wasn't there girl I don't understand I know it's like <laughs> you didn't think it was weird that all four of her exes are dead um, <laughs> 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 it's kind of like the head scratcher yeah yeah, is it a life expectancy? Right. I mean, I think it's important to remember these women were, were very convincing. We might not think of them as bombshells, but it's pretty clear that, like a Tilly Klimek, who is a Polish-American lady in Chicago who had a bunch of husbands, the media was vicious about her looks, vicious. But if you look at how many husbands she got, it's like, we need to step down <laughs> and stop just, like, there was clearly, like, a real charm and allure and a power she had over men and, um... I just think that's interesting and important to remember. And now a quick break to tell you about a podcast all the way from West Africa, Nigeria. Grow and Glow podcast is a show hosted by Gracie Emo, and it's aimed at helping young people deal with issues in their lives. Episodes from how to deal with depression, dealing with loneliness, low self-esteem, and managing your mental and bodily stress, and other fun topics just for you. Grow and Glow Podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can click on the link Grow and Glow Podcast on Instagram to listen. Check it out today, and I will link that in the show notes. Let them know the good is in the details sent you. Did you guys watch the documentary on Netflix about, I mean, pretty much a female serial killer uh, called The Worst Roommate Ever? No. <laughs> no. Oh, you guys got to watch it. It is, um, it's very sad. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to talk about it in a funny light. But the title is, it's a funny title called The Worst Roommate Ever. And it is about a, pretty much a female kind of serial killer. It, the interesting thing is that, it hit exactly what Tori was talking about. Usually it's done within the same home and it's done with people that they know. But she she killed a lot of people. It was about a woman in the 70s, 1980s, uh, Sacramento, a career criminal oh, of a I woman. I know who you're talking about. Dorothea yes. Fuente? Yes. Nailed yes. it. Yes. Classic yes. grandma figure, right? Like how she looked? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so so if any if any listeners out there are wondering like, oh, like, is there a good example of this that, that's relatable? Mm-hmm. Go watch The Worst Roommate Ever on Netflix. Did you find that the sentencing for these women differed or did you think any of that was interesting that there seemed to be more of a reluctance for execution mm-hmm. or more of a desire for it to get rid of these women like what was the sentencing like given their crimes and the fact that they were women definitely at least for the american cases more of a reluctance for execution there were a couple where it would be you know the reluctance on the part of the judge not wanting to be the first to sentence the first woman in oklahoma to death That was the case of Nanny Doss. You know, just sort of not wanting to cross that line. But some were executed. The names are all blurring together now. Like Marianne Cotton, um, who was a Jack the Ripper era female serial killer, was hung. I've read an academic whose name I can't remember pointed this out, so this isn't my observation. But it was that women, female serial killers are judged twice, once as a killer and once as a woman. So that was sort of an argument that they do get harsher sentences. I think it's kind of both and, like, yeah, there's this deep cultural reluctance to fry a woman in the electric chair the way we we might not necessarily have towards a man. At the same time, <laughs> these women get judged more harshly, maybe not in a literal sentencing way, but in a social way, you know, it's like, well, of course that man raped and killed woman, women because he's a man, but how could that mother poison people there's like a bit more of a pearl clutching there or something which again doesn't lead to a harsher sentence but it's still worth noting i wonder when children are involved because when Mm. the women would kill their children like they'd get rid of the husband and then the child that they had with them in order to Mm. move forward that that would repulse people because there's this idea of women um well first of all killing people is awful but Mm. it goes against the grain of a woman is not supposed to is supposed to be motherly and wants to take care of her children so that it's almost more horrendous because it doesn't seem it's totally contrary to our ideas about nature yeah it really is i mean and i think a good example of how horrendous it is not it's 
objectively a horrendous crime, but then socially it's more it's considered more horrendous. Um, and a good example of that is Nanny Doss, who is the woman from Oklahoma. And this was during the 1950s. And she killed a bunch of people, And she, but she was very savvy about how to market herself as a serial killer. She admitted to her husband killings. I believe it was four or five. She pretty easily admitted to killing multiple husbands, but she would never admit to killing her mother, to killing um, two of her children, to and maybe to even killing a grandchild. My theory is that she knew it would ruin her image. You know, it's like there was something a little bit forgivable about being a husband killer because she really leaned hard into the narrative of like, well, these men were drunks and abusers and I'm a hopeless romantic. I don't think that her husband's... There's some evidence that her husbands were not drunks and abusers. But she, of course, knew that that would play well with an audience, right? But killing your own children? Like, there's no... Like, what narrative... How can you spin that for an audience? And she was very aware of that, which is kind of incredible. I have to ask you about this whole writing process because I know whenever I'm in the throes of something, I talk about it endlessly. All my friends Mm -hmm. hear about it. (laughs) So what was it like when you were working on this and you're doing the research and... What was it like, the conversations? You know, you're excited about this book that you're putting together, and then you're like, did you hear about this person killed this person? I mean, yeah, what was the response from friends and family? It just totally depended on if they were a true crime person or not. You know, (laughs) some people were like, tell me everything. And then one friend literally scooched her chair away from me at one point. Which I'm still sort of annoyed by. So I had to, you know, know my audience in terms of what to share. But it was a fast process. I had a year to write it, and then I procrastinated, like, three months. So I gave myself a temporary hip injury because I wrote with one leg up on my chair. Oh, my goodness. So don't do that, anyone. How did you do this? Like, where did you get the information in order to put this together? I used a lot of newspaper archives through newspapers.com, through ProQuest, libraries. University libraries were super helpful. You know, they always have the weird old book that public library may not I mean, it really depended on the woman because there were so many different eras and countries that I covered. So I worked, you know, for the the Russian lady that I mentioned, I worked with a translator. I had a friend do some digging for a Moroccan serial killer. And then I even had like some false ends. Like I had a, a Japanese friend do some digging on this Japanese female serial killer and I couldn't include her because there's just nothing written about her because she was killing during World War II. So the press was busy. Um, At least that's my theory. You know, I had to kind of pivot depending on the woman, but I really, I really loved that. It was fun. You piqued my interest. So was this Japanese female killer, was was this learned about through word of mouth or uh, tell me a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. There was some coverage about her. Her name was Miyuki Ishikawa. She had a, oh gosh, I'm not going to get all the facts right, but I think she had like a kind of an orphanage situation, one of those for-profit. Sadly, there are other stories like this across the world throughout time, you know, like sort of a for-profit orphanage where in order to open up beds for more kids... Not a for-profit orphanage, sorry. Like a for-profit, like, we'll watch your kid. Like, you can't afford to house and feed your kid, so you'll pay us to do it. And then she would, oh, um, boy. you can sort of yeah. fill in the blanks. But oh, I, you know, I could barely, it's so scandalous, and I was like, okay, this had to be a huge case in Japan. I couldn't find the barest little articles in English, so I figured it had to be huge in Japan. But my friend went looking for through the Japanese newspaper archives and also couldn't find anything. And that's just my theory, is like, there was just so much else going on that... How I mean, you know, we live in the information age, right? Mm-hmm. Like, anybody in the world can write an article and publish it on anything. Mm-hmm. It's like, we can't even begin to know what we don't know um, <laughs> about the reporting or about anything, yeah. just because... Yeah, we've lived through some chaotic times in the world. We've now that we have all this information, we have all this information. But still, it's like like there could be many, many, many more yeah, um, female serial killers out there. In fact, you you put something in your book that I found to be very interesting. It was like a pro men website or like a, a men's oh, a men's gosh, rights yes, men's website. Rights. <laughs> yeah, where they inflate the number of female serial killers out there. It was like, well, oh, the gosh. statistics are here, but they yeah. these people actually have it up to a thousand. Hell, maybe they're right. I don't even know. I know. I mean, it's hard to know. We have to imagine there are serial killers, male and female, that we don't know about. 
that being said, I just don't want to sow paranoia. Like, I think a lot of true crime makes people think that there's a serial killer around every corner. That just doesn't bear out statistically for me. You know, it's just, it really is such a rare crime. Like, male serial killers are super rare. And then female serial killers are like 10% of male serial killers. But yeah, the men's rights website included a lot of stories that sounded really juicy and then I would follow the trail and I'd be like oh this is just clearly a tabloid hoax like the best one is I don't think I put this in the book but this oh speaking of femme fatales you'll like this she was allegedly a a Hungarian beauty from the 30s you know the thin eyebrows and the porcelain skin and the the dark lipstick (laughs) named Vera or something. And she killed all her lovers and kept them in matching white marble coffins in her basement. And she would visit them. Yes, and okay. No. It didn't happen. It did not happen. I was like, oh, this is great. I have to include this. No, she is totally not real. (laughs) That is straight up out of a film noir. I'm not kidding you. Like literally that was out of a detective novel. Being the expert that you are, I hope you don't mind me calling you the expert on on, on killers, but... (laughs) Do you have any tips for, let's just say, uh, men out there to avoid female killers? Is there any, is there any, do you have like a, here's your tip sheet. Like, please be careful. Please watch out for these signs. I think that my only tip would be, and I've already said it, it's, are all four of her ex-husbands dead? (laughs) Ah, common sense. Yes. Understood. Common sense. sense. If her food makes you violently ill. That, yes. Excellent. I was going to say if it has a strange metallic taste, but yes. If you're always vomiting after you eat over at her place, that's that's not normal either. Really, really good. Oh, and then the the age-old trope of, is she asking to up your um, insurance every couple of... Yes, is she asking to be added to your insurance policy? Right. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yep. 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 Um, Those are, those, those are pretty basic. I think those are helpful. Yeah. Tori, I have a question about this part that you put at the conclusion that you wrote that you actually cried twice while you were working on one of the chapters. And it made me think that the experience of writing, of writing, of researching, and like really trying to frame a narrative around evil mm-hmm. is a radically different experience than for me the reader because as I was reading I didn't come to any moments where I felt like crying mm-hmm. but now that I know that that was your experience I'm interested in that difference so could you explain what is it that you think made you almost come to tears when you're writing one of these chapters well it was it was the same moment each time and it was this German-American serial killer from, I want to say, the 30s here in the U.S. who was killing elderly men, you know, sort of befriending romantic, vaguely romantically befriending elderly men and killing them. And one of the things about her is she, her nickname was Iceberg Anna. Like, she was cold. She was, she showed no emotion, you know. She was, she was evil. She was stoic. And then she was sentenced to death. That was a, I didn't think of her when we were talking about that earlier. And she just completely broke down on her way to the electric chair and didn't want to die. And that was the part that made me cry, which is both times, like, going through the chapter, I cried at that part. And, um, you know, it's sort of weird that I cried for the killer and not for the victim, but it was just so pathetic. And it was so human to me. It was like, even this ice-cold murderess who seemed to have no emotions taking other people's lives absolutely no respect for human life she did actually care about life she cared about her own life and she was afraid at the end and it just got me it just you know it was very felt very poetic like I don't think the reader would necessarily cry at that part of course it would be lovely if they did but I think that I was so it's maybe just a difference of duration like I just spent so much longer with her Mm -hmm. than you did I like reached that point it was like yeah. I, I was I, I maybe felt more of a intimacy with that story than the reader would, I think. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, you're doing all of that. It, that's when it really hit me is that, I mean, I'm just looking at it as a book and the stories. Mm-hmm. And I think I left the researcher out of my head and what kind of an impact that would have on somebody who is spending a lot of time. Like you said, you worked on this in a year spending a lot of time sorting through mm-hmm. some really gruesome material to put it together. Yeah, I did, I did an article once about, um, well, about a lot of things about true crime and religion, but I interviewed another true crime writer about, I was just sort of interested in how writing about these things 
affect the writers like you're talking about and I talked to M. William Phelps who's like a big true crime writer like he just has a zillion books and a zillion podcasts and you know just big stuff he told me he actually lost his catholic faith writing about true crime you know it was that oh my gosh I know he said he had spent all this time with this actual serial killer in prison and one day he was in church praying and it just occurred to him, why don't I ever pray for this guy's soul? And he just had this crisis of faith. Wow. Yeah. And I just, you know, I just bring that up to show that it can be a very emotional, fraught thing. I mean, I know I'm a pastor's daughter myself and I know it's like, it just makes you think. It makes you think, you know, You're Jeffrey a pastor's Dahmer. Sort of, that, okay, so... Now I understand because some of the the language that you used here in the in the conclusion it was something along the lines of why it's important to pay attention to evil that evil isn't just completely other mm-hmm. but that if we just make these serial killers out to be pure monsters then we're stepping away from the fact that they're human and almost taking ourselves out of the equation at all yeah. when we could play some sort of role in the kind of society I mean I don't want to make it sound like those killers are not responsible for their behavior I yeah. don't think that yes. but if we make them into monsters um, too much, then it's too easy for us to distance ourselves and not even recognize that that can be in us as well, mm-hmm. that it's important to to face evil. But the fact that yeah. you use the word evil, uh, yeah, I thought loaded. was interesting. <laughs> yes, I guess evil is a loaded word and I don't even know exactly what I mean by it because, sorry, there's a very loud plane outside my window. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, are you in an airport? That was. Uh, uh, I'm no. under a flight path. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have, by the way, I have PTSD also from being in DC during 9/11. So whenever oh I hear God. airplanes, my, you, my my heart please. flutters a little. Sorry. <laughs> please, yeah. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. But yeah, evil. I think is kind of a alienating like it does just the word itself sounds like other like that's you know there's no evil in me so maybe I I mean like darkness or you know I don't know if there's a better word for that but I definitely think it's interesting to think about and I think despite all the true crime that's in culture and always has been there we don't really talk about like the well we talk about the morality and ethics of it like should we consume it like you know we shouldn't forget about these victims and these types of victims and all that is good but we don't really talk about it using words like evil and i just think it's interesting to throw that into the mix both of your points are really good when you think about it because like if you just put this if you which if i'm extrapolating correctly it's we got to be very careful just saying oh those are just monsters. Those yeah. are complete anomalies. They were born that way. Yes. Forget about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Then we as a society are not looking at ourselves and looking at all the the things that could have led to mm-hmm. that individual, male, female, doesn't matter, mm-hmm. becoming a serial killer rather than actually getting the mental help or getting the, the social network or mm-hmm. getting the support in order for that person to become a functioning member of society. That is what I see is what the danger is here. Yeah, it's that. And it's also even more personal. It's like if we put serial killers as a totally other thing, a monster, nothing to do with us, we're not forced to think about all the ways that we might actually be on a spectrum with them. Like, do Mm. we also hate, (laughs) you know, like, do we feel rage like what are you know even do we do we lie do we I'm not like shaming us for doing these things we're only human (laughs) it would be weird if we didn't do those things but it's also I feel like people right now are really obsessed with like morality in a sort of finger pointing policing way but you never hear people saying like talking about like the evil or darkness or whatever brokenness inside them like in the really ugly stuff that's not going to make you a serial killer having it admitting it whatever but it, i think it do, i do think humanity like we're all on the same spectrum none of us get to hop off that spectrum and richard ramirez is definitely on one end and the women of my book are on that end with him but we're on it too you know <laughs> rudy i'm gonna be watching out no, come on. <laughs> no, 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 no. Listen, I'm I'm dealing with my I have rage. I have anguish. I have I have my issues. I'm clearly reading all this stuff in order to address my issues, mm-hmm. Gwen. I really care. The reason why I'm on this podcast is to become a better person. Mm-hmm. So it's so stay by me and then I won't kill you. It's very <laughs> simple. It's very simple. 
Well, I was just thinking, it was just just a conversation I was having with a couple students the other day about a work by Hannah Arendt, and she's Mm -hmm. an American philosopher, she's from Germany, she's Jewish, she was able to leave before things just completely unraveled, so she's able to leave for her safety before things unraveled in World War II, and in her later years, she covered, She, I think it was for the New Yorker that she went to Jerusalem and she covered the trial of Eichmann. And she has a famous book mm. called Eichmann in Jerusalem. And the subtitle of that is called The Banality of Evil. It was, I mean, as, as a Jewish woman who fled Germany and came to the United States, one of the things that struck her is that she's at this trial watching this monster who is responsible, Eichmann, who is responsible for killing thousands and thousands Mm -hmm. of people. And as she's sitting there and reporting and she's listening to him, she realizes he's an airhead. (laughs) And that was... That's actually, I remember it's one of those lines. She said, he could only speak in cliches or he repeated himself so that everything he said was a cliche. Mm -hmm. And she realized that this monster was actually somebody who didn't have a thought in his head. And that's why the banality of evil, that famous phrase comes Mm -hmm. from her. And she got some, you know what, she got some some flack for that because here she's supposed to make him, you know, She's Mm -hmm. not supposed to go contrary to the fact that this was a monster. But she was recognizing that this person, that no, he's not a monster. Mm -hmm. He is evil, but that evil is not just some extraordinary thing necessarily. Evil can be as a result of pure thoughtlessness Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and drive in that where you're just so unaware and just not even caring about other people or seeing them as human Mm -hmm. and i think that's part of the spectrum tori is that when you're saying like there's a bit in all of us like how are we behaving do we ever use a term to describe somebody that demeans their humanity Mm -hmm. like that's the kind of thing that i think you know because what you're doing then is you're reducing somebody's status as a human being in your eyes Mm -hmm. and the extreme of that of course is what the serial killers are doing to the point where people are just objects i think there's a lot to learn there i made that far too serious let's let's end on another note (laughs) tori (laughs) tori has another book out Rudy. Uh, let's let's hear about it let's hear about the other book and let's, let's hear about the podcast. That. Let's hear about. Oh. Let's hear more about Tori and how we can help promote her and her and her great work. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. My other book is called Confident Women, and it's about female con artists. And it was really fun to research. Uh, it came out last year, and it's just about the wildest and women with more pseudonyms than you could dream of. You know, just these like crazy swindlers. They're mostly American, but I did do some international ones too. And yeah, it's it's really fun. And then my podcast is called Criminal Broads. And that is just kind of the director's cut of my books. It's like female criminals of all stripes. And I'm actually not doing it anymore, but all the episodes are up there. So I have some World War II ones, which we keep coming back to. I have ones on female Nazi and on females who fought the Nazis. And there are some serial killers and some wrongfully convicted women and some horrible ones and some funny ones. Since you're not doing that anymore, would you like to be our on-call uh, killer expert? <laughs> like if we if we if something comes up, yes. can we just give, hey, let's bring Tori back on to talk yes. about X, Y, and Z? Yes, you can. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, Tori, thank you so much for your time. I am so excited that I read your book and then I reached, I thought, it was just a hunch. I was just like, I wonder who this author is. I wonder if I could get her on the show and that you responded with it. Yes, I can't even tell you how much that made my day because Rudy and I do both are interested in true crime stuff. And so this is a total treat for us. Oh, thank you. It was so nice to talk to both of you in a thoughtful way about this. Definitely was. And I I mean, I'm serious. I really feel like we made some groundbreaking theories and analysis on this show like i'm very pleased with this conversation i feel smarter because of it so i I really do i'm serious good is in the details is produced by dr gwendolyn dalski and rudy sello if you're listening on apple podcasts and you're enjoying the show please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five star review or join our book club and support the show on patreon patreon.com slash good is in the details I'll link that in the show notes and be sure to check out our show notes to get more about Tori's book and all about her podcast and also about our podcast sponsor, Grow and Glow Podcast. Okay, until next time. Bye.